Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so we've been going through the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalm uh, 120 through Psalm 134. And we talked about how this, these are a collection of traveling worship songs that the Hebrew people would sing as they were going from their homes to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the festivals. And these songs are a collection of themes in the kingdom of God and they're arranged in such a way that they're designed to elicit responses and reminders and essentially worship out of God's people. So as they're traveling to the temple for worship, they've already begun to practice worship before they've even arrived. And we started examining how these psalms, these songs, mirror some of the the biblical themes that weren't just present in the lives of the Hebrew people, but carry on all the way through into the New Testament to where we are today. And so when we started in Psalm 120, we followed the psalmist from this theme of repentance where he was leaving his city and he was heading to God's city. And when he showed up in God's city, he was overwhelmed by God's faithfulness and God's attributes and character that are literally imbued into the stonework of the city. Everywhere he looked when he showed up into the city, he's seeing God's character and attributes being mirrored. And then he, he goes up to the temple and he sees this in, in massive structure that is the symbol of God's presence on earth. And he's overwhelmed by all of what that means for him as a traveler. And so we see that he begins in the Psalms of Ascent, he begins to start praying this prayer. Lord, all the attributes that are found in the city, I, I don't want them to just be, a, be true in the city and in the stonework, like I want it to be true in me. Like when, when, when I see justice flowing from the throne of David, I don't want just justice to be located in the city of Jerusalem from the throne of David. I want justice to flow out of my heart so that I can take what's true about this city home to my home city. And so he starts praying this prayer and we find that as he starts praying this prayer, the Lord starts answering this prayer. And he answers this prayer in the form of blessing his people. And the psalmist starts becoming aware of how much the Lord has already started answering the prayer before the psalmist even knew to pray the prayer. I want this in my life, and and as I'm praying this, I'm starting to become aware that, man, I want this, and, and in a way, I've already got it. I'm here because of the things he was already starting to do in me in my own hometown before I even got to the temple to worship. And so I want this thing and I'm realizing that this thing that I want, it's already starting to take place in my heart. And so the psalmist sings about the blessings of the Lord, how they just kind of follow him everywhere he goes. But how these blessings start affecting the other people around him in the world because this world is also filled with wicked people who don't want to follow God's ways but they do want his blessings. And they wanna manipulate him to get his stuff but they don't wanna serve him as the Lord. And it causes this strife so he sings about the blessing of the Lord but also the persecution of the wicked. And so then we get to uh, where we were last week, the psalmist starts singing about this 
idea of repentance again because he (laughs) becomes aware that some of the blessings that the Lord poured out on him can in a way start becoming idols and he starts in his heart turning back to this old city that he lived in. And so while he is present in God's city looking at the temple enjoying all the blessings of the Lord, those blessings have a way of kind of morphing and changing in their own life and becoming these new idols. And so the thing that God meant for your good now becomes the idol that you serve and you've got to protect at all costs. And so the psalmist starts repenting and walking through these songs of repentance. And then we're given the Psalm of David where he prays and he says, I I don't want to consume my mind with things that are too high, too large, too all-consuming for me. I want to live my life quiet and at rest. And so that's where we finished last week. It was a psalm rehashing and kind of meditating on the reality that God offers rest to his people, but it comes when his people choose to stop trying to bite off more than they can chew. (laughs) When his people stop saying, I've got to have an answer for everything the world tells me I've got to have an answer for. There are some things that are just too big for me to consider, and they're not, they're, they're, they're out of scope for what is, what, my, what God has called me for my life, and so I'm just not even concerned and occupy my mind with things that are too high and lofty. And when I do that, I start realizing that there's a peace that's offered to me that looks most like a milk-drunk baby. <laughs> we talked last week about how David talks about, I'm, I'm, my, I've, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. And how babies, when they've when, when, when they're got their belly full of milk and they just kind of like roll their eyes back and they're just like, they're at complete rest. It's that thing that we're all like, I want to be there. I want to get to that place. I want to be like that baby. David says, that's how I live my life. I live my life like that little kid who is satisfied with the Lord and nothing else. So that is the path that the Psalms of Ascent has taken us through, and it's uh, brought us to Psalm 132 today, which is the longest Psalm. So we're gonna read 132, and then 133 and 134. 133 and 134 are short, they're only three verses each, so we'll spend the majority of our time in 132 today. But 132 is a Psalm of identity, 133 is a Psalm of unity, and 134 is a Psalm of worship. So let's get into it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 132. I'm gonna read through the Psalm and then we're gonna go back in and we're gonna dissect it and examine what the Psalmist is saying. Because as we've said all throughout the message series, Psalms are songs and they're filled with imagery. You can't take poetry literally. It's poetry. It's not prose. It's filled with images and color that are meant to elicit inside of you ideas that are larger than you can just fill on 10 chapters of a book. It's not a legal document, it's poetry. And so it elicits, it it, it reaches down into your soul and it starts twisting your emotions and turning you over. And so it bypasses just your mind where it says, okay, well this thing is true. And it gets down into your heart and says, this thing is true, therefore you have to do something about it. And it's gonna create tension until you do something about it. That's the beauty of poetry. Psalm 132 verse one, let's start there. It says, remember, O Lord, In David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, 
This is what he swore. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. A dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Interesting, so we've got David's life goal. And it wasn't to be king, it wasn't to be in charge, it wasn't to amass as much wealth and popularity as he could. We're told that his life goal was to find a place for the Lord, which is the poetic way of saying, I've gotta find a place where the Lord can be among his people, of which I'm chief among them. I'm their king, and if th- what I want most with, from my life is to find a place where I can be close to God, somewhere here on earth. I gotta be close to him. Verse six, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem, and we found it in the fields of Jaar, which is a poetic slang uh, term for the location of Kiriath Jiriim, which we'll find out later in 1 Samuel 6 and 7 is where the event took place where David decides to go and pull the ark out of storage and bring it back to Jerusalem. So the psalmist is saying, I remember when David made this commitment and I remember us as a people being really excited about what David decided and we went down to go see what he was up to. Verse seven, let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. So they're saying, man, I remember when David did this. I remember the trek of the ark back. I remember Uzzah. I remember people dying. I remember lots and lots of bulls being killed and lots of blood. And I remember David dancing in his underwear when the ark finally came back in. And I remember his wife looking down in disgust at him. I remember all of this because it's deeply rooted into our history. Verse eight, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And then he appeals to the promises that the Lord made to David. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. The Lord promised David, one of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever and here I will dwell for I have desired it. This is the Lord speaking. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread and her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed and his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Okay, there's so much in there, but we gotta start from the beginning. 
because this builds. I want to just get into 17 right now. Let's talk about the horn that's going to sprout for David, but let's, let's get there. Let's build. Go back to verse one through five. The psalmist is remembering the act of David by digging through the history of Israel. So this is important what the psalmist is doing in this song. He's establishing an identity for the people and he does that by drawing on the rich history of the people. We are a people because there were people that came before us that did really important things that shaped our identity for today. And as we go back into that history, we start seeing, man, you remember David's difficult childhood and how he was overlooked and despised, but, but he still decided he wanted to bless your name. Do you remember how in our history, we've got this king that we look to who, who he, he spent most of his day just watching sheep. He, all of his brothers overlooked him. No one liked him. He, he was the outcast of the family. Like his own dad didn't even consider him worthy enough when the prophet came to the house and said, gather all your boys together. His dad didn't even think that David was worth calling in from the field to line up in the house with the rest of his boys. But David didn't play the victim. He didn't say, woe is me. He played with the cards God dealt him and he grew up and decided, man, I'm not gonna spend my life trying to redeem how bad my childhood was. I'm gonna spend my life, I'm gonna spend all of it on the Lord. I just wanna spend my life on the Lord. The one thing I wanna do with my life is I just wanna find a place for the Lord to come and dwell among his people. That's the rich history that the psalmist is calling the people to draw on. We have a history of people saying, I want God more than anything else. What nation has that history? No nation. No nation has that history. No king at this time said, I want to make every policy that I establish a reflection of my desire to cherish the Lord above all other things. No nation did this, no leader did this. But Israel is saying, we did this. We had a king like this. And we remember as a people responding to that, and that's where we get into verse six and seven, we, rem- we remember as God's people responding to our leader having this attitude that we wanted to get on board with it. Whatever flows, whatever's up at the top flows down, and if David's desire is to cherish the Lord above all things, then we as a people wanna cherish the Lord above all things. And so when David makes a decision to go and pick the ark out of storage, because it, it got in storage, uh, because essentially the people of God didn't cherish the ark. The ark was a box that was made at the time of Moses. At this point in history, when David pulls out of storage, it's over 450 years old. And it was the box that symbolized God's presence on earth. It was referred to as the footstool of God. When the tabernacle was set up in the wilderness, this box was in the Holy of Holies, and the Jewish people treated this box as God's footstool. Literally, God is sitting on his throne in heaven, and his feet are extending down onto the earth, and his feet are on this box. This is where heaven and earth connect on all of earth. This box right here. And Israel let it get stolen by the Philistines. But God started cursing the Philistines and the box actually eventually went back because the Philistines are like, we we don't want this. Ever since we got this box, everyone's got cancer and tumors. 
and we're plagued with rats. So we're gonna give the box back to you and we're also gonna give you an offering of gold tumors and gold rats just to let you know we don't want any part of this. Now, I don't know what was going through their mind. I don't know why they thought that was like an, a good offering, but they gave the ark back and they gave a bunch of golden rats and golden tumors said, please take it back. So what did Israel do? They didn't rejoice and say, man, look what our God did. They put it in storage at a dude, dude's house named Abinadab, and they just put it in the back of his closet, and they just left it there. God blessed that house, but it sat there for 20 years. David took his leadership role, and one of the first things he did when he became king is he said, I'm gonna find a place for the Lord. Hey, that old box that's sitting in storage, I want that thing back in the Lord's city. If I'm gonna rule from Jerusalem, I want that box right out in front where everybody can see it. I want God's presence among his people. And this Psalm is recounting that event when David decided to do that, everyone gets out of there. They're like, oh man, come on, come on, get your kids, get your grandkids, get everybody. Let's go see what David is up to. And they all go down and they watch this massive parade to establish God's presence back among his people. This is what the Psalmist is singing about. And so everyone's overjoyed. David's actions are prompting worship among the people. And the Psalmist is trying to identify, guys, we have a rich history, we have an identity wrapped in worship. You remember how David was? He was a worshiper. You remember how we were when David brought the ark back? We were worshipers. Our identity is worship, and not because we're just deciding today to be a people of worship, because our ancestors were people of worship. Because the response to watching the sea swallow up the Egyptians was to sing about it. We're a bunch of worshipers, that's what we do. It's in our DNA, We're, that's our identity. We sing in response to what God is doing. But singing is not just response, it's also a participation. Because we're not actually causing the sea to swallow up, the Lord is doing that, it's not something we can do. So what is the thing that we can do? We can sing. So, it's not, so, so it is a response to what God's doing, but it's also us joining in with the work of him and our work along his work is singing about the work that he's doing. And so the psalmist is leveraging all of this history to, in verse eight, appeal to the Lord to come and do it again. He says, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place to the ark of your might. So what's happening here? What's happening is the song is eliciting a response in the people. Hey, do you remember what brought us to this place? Do you remember? Okay, so, so they're in the city and they're beholding this tabernacle and they're standing here thinking, how did this tabernacle get here? How did this temple get built? Oh, this temple got built because Solomon built it. Who is Solomon's dad? David was Solomon's dad. And why did Solomon build the temple? Because you have to have a permanent home for the ark that David brought back. So the psalmists who have now traveled, all the, the, the people who are traveling have traveled from their hometowns and now they're in the city and they're beholding this temple and the psalmist is forcing everyone to sing about how this temple got here. How did the temple get here? Because of the long history of the people of God who love singing and worshiping the Lord. And so the, the song switches and it starts appealing to the Lord and it says, Lord, can you respond to the reality that we're now, that's now sinking into our bones that we're a people of worship? Can, can you respond to our worship now like you respond to the worship back in the old days? When this temple was first built and Solomon commissioned it and the presence of the Lord filled it and it was so thick with smoke that no one could even see, 
Can you do that again? Can you show up one more time? Can, can you respond to our worship one more time and make it like the old days? Can you, can you make your people a people who are shouting for joy? Can you clothe your priests in righteousness like the old days? That's what the psalmist is appealing here. He's calling upon the promises that he made to David. And as we get into verse nine and 10, he actually elicits these promises. Lord, you, 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 you promised. And so here's what's happening. The psalmist is saying, you guys remember how we all got here? Lord, do you remember how we got here? Lord, do you remember how, how you made these promises to David? Can you respond to our worship, but not just because we're currently worshiping, but because you promised long ago that you would always respond to worship? See, that's how, it's, it's a razor thin line, right? We think that just because we do what God tells us to do, that then he's on the hook to owe us for something. We prayed like you told us to pray, so you gotta, you gotta do it now. We worship the way you told us to worship, so you gotta show up, you gotta do it. That's not how this works. He shows up not as a response because he's on the hook because of something you did. He shows up because he's made promises long before you were ever born that he would always show up when this happens. That, that's the way he works. And so when God says, I'm gonna make a covenant with David that your ancestors are gonna sit on the throne and that the, the, the people of God are gonna shout for joy in the presence of the Lord, and I'm gonna show up in their midst and I'm gonna call them my people and I'm gonna be their God and there's gonna be joy flowing through the city. It's not because the people decided, all right, we should probably all get on the same page and start treating God with respect and once we do that, then he'll have to respond. No, once we do that, he will respond because he has promised he has always respond when the people start acting like God's people and stop acting like rebellious teenagers. And so the psalmist is walking through this this, this whole process, he's, he's leveraging for the people, here's our history, and then he appeals to God, Lord, you made these promises, can you please come through on your promises? And then we get into verse 13, and we start seeing that the Lord is going to respond to his promises. Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Okay, so the promises that he made are true and we see that they are true because he is fulfilling his promises even today as we're singing. He chose to bless this place and call these people his people. He chooses to bless and feed and clothe these people who are here together worshiping him in his temple. He promises that he's gonna cause a horn to sprout from David and a lamp to shine. All right, now we're back at it. Now we're at the good stuff. Like, oh, the, good stuff, the other stuff was good stuff, but this is the real good stuff. Because that last line, I will make a horn to sprout for David, should make your ears tingle. That should make you as a people of God today in 2022, start, okay, well, hold, hold on one second here. I know that, I've heard that somewhere before. This is familiar to me because here's what's fascinating about scripture. This stuff was written 2,500 years ago, but it's talking about stuff that is happening today among the people of God today. And so as we're reading through this, we start understanding that this is more than just 
what starts off as a prayer and a response to God, it starts off as an identity lesson from the psalmist, but it ends as a prophecy. And as we start reading through this, we start seeing, um, okay, well, uh, like the Lord has chosen Zion. Zion. Zion's a mountain. So the Lord has chosen that his resting place will always be on a mountain. That reminds me of Daniel chapter two when Nebuchadnezzar is given this vision of this man who's got a gold head and silver chest and bronze hips and clay and iron feet and a stone not cut with human hands rolls up and takes this entire structure out and then the stone turns into a mountain that covers the entire world. I know that mountain. That mountain is Jesus. So when God says, I have chosen Mount Zion, he's saying something better than I have chosen a literal mountain in Jerusalem. I have chosen a Mount Zion, but this Mount Zion's better than the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. I'm gonna rest forever on a mountain, but it's gonna be a better mountain than the one you can go visit. This mountain's a person, and it's gonna grow to cover the whole earth. And I'm seeing priests being clothed with salvation. And that reminds me of the, we just did a sermon series on this last year, Isaiah 61. There's a promise that this suffering servant is gonna come and he's gonna clothe his priests with salvation. And I remember that was Jesus. And this, this horn of David, I'm thinking John, or excuse me, Luke 169. There's a horn of salvation that grows out of David. That's Jesus. And then I'm looking at the last part of verse 17. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Now lamps, a lamp was an actual physical lamp that used to reside in the temple. It was this temp, it, it was the place in the holy place, not the holy of holies, not the outer court. It was in the second room. And in this room, there's a table of showbread, there's a candlestick, there's an altar of incense. And this lamp, this candlestick, is the only thing in this dark room giving it light. And the oil that fueled this lamp is olive tree oil. And so, and, and, as, as, and I'm remembering back in Zechariah, there was a prophecy where God used a lamp to communicate to his people that this is the temple I'm gonna rebuild. So I, know that, so, so I know that lamps symbolize the temple, but I also know in Revelation 2 that lamps are churches. And so I'm starting to see this connection. I'm drawing these lines because I'm a person who is filling my soul with scripture and I can't help but letting these imagery just jump out of the page to me and I'm, I'm seeing how, okay, so the lamp was a symbol of the temple, but now in the New Testament, we're told that Christ was, remember, I, didn't he say something about, I'm gonna die and raise this temple up in three days? So the temple isn't a physical structure, the temple is his physical body. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, when, when uh, Paul is telling the church in Corinth, hey, um, you, don't, don't, don't you know you can't have fellowship with demons? Don't you know you can't do whatever you wanna do? Because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Because you are in Christ, who is the new, true temple, you are now, in a way, temples. And if we're, if we're wrapping this imagery on top of itself, we're seeing this symbol of lampstands. If, if the lampstands symbolize this old temple structure and the lampstands now symbolize the structure of the churches, what I'm reading in this 
is a foreshadowing of Jesus and the New Testament. So here's what's happening here. The song starts with a psalmist saying, Lord, we want to remember our old days. I don't remember the time when David thought that worship was the most important thing for his people and he brought the ark back and, and everybody sang about it. And Lord, could you just please do that once again with this temple? And, and I'm looking at this temple and I'm realizing that my identity is wrapped in this temple. And so the psalmist is praying. Now the psalmist here, he doesn't know Jesus is coming. He doesn't know that the lamp is a church. He thinks the lamp symbolizes the temple. But the Lord starts building on these imageries as we go through into the New Testament and the New Testament writers illuminate this stuff. So here's how the prayer works. We start off with the psalmist saying, Lord, things are not good right now, but I've brought my family to Jerusalem and I'm looking at this temple. And I'm starting to reminisce about all the things that made this temple possible. And I'm thinking about David and I'm thinking about the decisions he made with his life. And he was a Jew and I'm a Jew and, and, and I'm realizing that my identity with this temple and, and worship, it's all tied together. And, and this is here and my family is here and we're doing this thing here together because of things that were done before I was even born. And David loved it and the people loved it. And so David bringing the ark back led to Solomon building the temple. And now I'm looking at this temple and so my prayer is Lord, revisit your people and be among us in this temple. And the Lord responds and says, I'll answer that prayer, but in a better way that you could ever imagine. The Lord says, I hear your prayer and I know what you want. You want the same thing David wanted. David wanted me among you. <laughs> David wanted me among the people. And that's the heart of what you're praying right now. You're asking, Lord, be among us once again. And, I, and I'm gonna answer that. I am gonna be among you once again, but it can't be in this temple because the God of the heavens can't live in temples made with the hands of man. Isaiah said that, Stephen quoted it right before he was killed for saying it. The God of the universe can't live in a temple we built with him, so what can he live in? How does he answer this prayer? He answers this prayer by giving us a cornerstone that was not made with the hands of man and making Christ a new and better temple and filling that temple with his presence. And then that temple ascends up to heaven and he fills all of the temples with his spirit. And, and the psalmist is saying, without even realizing it through prophetic means, I'm gonna answer your prayer and I'm gonna be among you, but it's not gonna be in a temple that you bring your family to. I'm gonna be among you because I'm gonna be in you. I will answer your prayer, but not in the way that you think I will. You're gonna come to me and you're gonna ask for things and I'm gonna say yes, but you're gonna see my answer and you'll be like, this isn't what I prayed for, but it's kind of better. And that reality should shape our prayers so that when we start coming to him, we're like, well, Lord, I've got a couple ways that I think that you could accomplish this. So Lord, please uh, answer my prayer in this specific way. <laughs> and the heavens just roar with laughter. <laughs> just imagine the angels whose job since the foundation of the world is to just take another turn and look at his glory one more time and just say, holy, holy. Just imagine when they hear our prayers, when the prayers of the saints start arising up and filling the, the, the bowl of incense in heaven. Just imagine the angels just being like, 
Jackie wanted what? You, look at what Tim's praying for now. Just how silly it seems to us to inform the God of the cosmos how he should answer our requests. Now, this isn't for us to start, well, well, let's reshape our prayers and let's just say, well, 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 Lord, whatever your will be done, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying come before the Lord uh, uh, like, like, a, like a skittish little cat. Like, I'm not really sure and I don't want to, you know, no lightning bolts. So just like, Lord, uh, whatever you want to do, just pray and uh, just do it. No, we're informed by, by Jesus that the way we should pray is, is with boldness. We should come before, we should bring our requests before the Lord and we should have confidence that he's gonna answer the requests. But if we live our lives thinking our entire Christian walk that we always know what's best without the expectation that when I ask this, it's probably wrong, but I'm gonna ask it anyway and let him respond in his love and mercy and I'll grow through it, then we're not praying correctly. The goal is to come before him boldly. Lord, do this thing and do it this way. And the Lord says, I like that. I'm gonna answer that prayer, but not the way you asked it. I'm gonna answer that prayer in a better way than you could have ever imagined. And when you get it, you're gonna, your, your whole understanding of how you should pray next time should be changed. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, there was a time when we were a people and we were all together and our, our DNA and our identity was wrapped in worship. It's who we were and we strayed from it and now I'm staring at this temple with my family and I'm saying, Lord, do, do it again. Reshape our identity. Make me a people of worship just like we used to be in the old days. Fill us with your presence. And the Lord says, I'm gonna, but I'm not gonna do it through this temple structure. I'm gonna tear this down and rebuild it in three days. I'm gonna give you a man, Jesus Christ, and he's gonna be the model that you're gonna follow. And he's gonna send into heaven and he's gonna fill you with his spirit and I'm gonna answer your prayer by putting my spirit in you. I'm gonna answer your prayer by taking your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. And I'm not just gonna do it in you and you, and I'm gonna do it in all of you. And when I do that in all of you, your identity will, will be exactly like it was at the time of David, but even better. You will be a people of worship, but you won't worship a stone structure that you built with your own hands. You worship the God Almighty who filled you with his presence. And that makes you a people that are collected into one whole family, which then pivots into Psalm 133. Let's read that. Psalm 133, behold, which means stop what you're doing and look. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious anointing oil on the head running down on the beard. There it is, guys. Grow them out. It's the most biblical thing you can do. It's like the precious oil on the beard running down, on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which is one of the highest mountains in this region, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. 
So 133, let's go back to verse one. He says, this family unity that we were just talking about in Psalm 132, this collect, this identity that you've got in the people of God as worshipers, this shapes the unity that you use moving forward. Because of what Christ did to make you one and because you worship him, that unity starts flowing down through the church and it affects everything it touches. You ever gotten oil on your clothes? Not easy to get out. That's the point he's trying to make. It flows from the top down and it affects everything it touches. It stains everything. The point he's trying to make here is that anointing oil that flows from the top down, it covers everything. It gives life to things like the dew of Hermon. So the picture here is unity flowing from the top down in the family and covering everyone underneath. Dads starts with you. You choosing to follow the narrow path of Jesus and teach your kids to do the same is like precious anointing oil that flows from the top down and will affect your kids and stain them in ways you can't even imagine 10, 15, 20 years in the future when they start having families. The greatest thing that you can do for your family, dads, is to treasure Jesus above all other things. That's the best thing you could do for your family. It flows down into your, uh, in, into your grandchildren. It flows um, in, in moms, into children. We see this in uh, the church. This is the way that the church is supposed to operate. This is why Paul spent so much time with Timothy on making sure that he chose good leaders in the local church because unity flows from the top down. If you don't have elders who are in unity, the church has no hope. If you've got one guy who has an agenda and three guys who treasure Jesus, you're not gonna make any progress because there's always someone striving to drive a wedge into the unity among the believers because they want to further their own agenda and not Christ's agenda. And this truth It doesn't just flow down in families and in churches. I would argue that it also flows down among national structures within the lands and to the streets. When at the very top of any government we're talking about makes a decision to do things God's ways, even though those people may not be believers and headed to heaven, the fact that they choose to do things God's ways will create a natural blessing that flows down into the streets of the cities. Look, I'm not making this up and I'm not trying to argue for it. Like you can believe it or not believe it, but it is the truth. When a group of people, even if they don't trust Jesus as their personal savior, says we're gonna do things God's way, there is a certain common grace that comes from doing things God's way. And if we all decide to do things God's way, it's not gonna save a nation and it's not gonna send people to heaven from hell just because we all decided, well, we're all gonna do things God's ways, but it is going to change the course of the collective group of the people. And this is one of the reasons why God was telling Isaiah to prophesy to the nations. Because yes, he had a covenant with Israel and he didn't have a covenant with with Assyria, but he did have words to say to Assyria. And some of those words are, you're not following my ways. 
Following my ways doesn't necessarily make you a covenant people, but it does have a repercussion on the way that justice flows out into the streets of your cities. And so there is something to be said about a people who even though are not Christian decide to follow God's ways, there is a natural blessing that flows through that unity. Now, I'm not advocating for unity at any cost. Let's roll that back from the national level back into the church level and the family level. You can achieve unity through compromise. We've got issues in the church, well let's just compromise. Let's get a little bit of what you want and a little bit of what you want and maybe we can have some peace. That's not the unity that's being sold from the word of God. The unity that's being sold from the word of God is this. You and you both abandon your stuff and we get up underneath what he wants. That's unity. You abandon your stuff. You over there in the corner, stop, abandon your stuff. Get over here, get under Jesus. Not you and you and you, get up under me and follow what I want because I'm the pastor and I do, and I know what he wants, so just follow me. That's not unity either. Unity is we have decided that this is what tells us what we do and how we operate. And this came from on high from his mouth through the words of his prophets. And we're going to decide that all of us are gonna unify under him, Jesus Christ, and nothing else. And when that happens, we're told that this is the picture that we will see. And then that picture, when this happens, when this worship starts flowing, when this anointing starts dripping down, it results in a call to corporate worship. Psalm 134, it says, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So the psalmist ends the journey with this. Guys, if everything we've been singing about is true, and it is, get your families together and let's worship. What is the natural response of a worshiping people to being confronted with the truth? It is to throw up our hands and to worship because God has been at work far beyond your little life. 60, 70, 80 years that you call life, he's been at work a lot longer than that. And he's inviting you to participate in the work that he has been working for thousands of generations. So I can't think of a better way for us to end this series and for us to end and respond to the Psalms of Ascent today than to be obedient to the call of worship and for us to go back into worship. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.